Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Learning with the Lion, a community read-through of the Gospel of Mark. Over the summer of 2023, members of the Ligonier community are coming together to walk through a 13-week exploration of Jesus' life, practicing reading the Bible together and asking what it means for everyday life. For more information, visit epiphanyligonier.org mark, where you can also sign up for our companion e-newsletter. In 1905, uh, the Catholic writer G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote to a newspaper in England called The Daily News. And he uh, had, comprised an edi- had composed an editorial because he had been writing about a, a series in the newspaper which would come to be known uh, as his book, uh, Heretics. He had been writing a number of reviews of, of famous people in the day who opposed Christianity and why they were wrong. And um, this was a, there was a political section of the book, and it was a source of some controversy. And so to clarify and depend, defend his position, he wrote to the Daily News, and he said this in his um, uh, piece. He said, in one sense, and that is the eternal sense, the thing is plain. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is, or should be, I am wrong. Until a man can give that answer, his idealism is only a hobby. Now, some of you may have heard an anecdote like that one before, um, or something to that effect. And uh, just this week in the New York Times, they tracked down that quote, uh, and this is the original. This is what C.S. Lewis, uh, excuse me, uh, G.K. Chesterton had said. The answer to the question, what is wrong, is, or should be, I am wrong. And until a man can answer that, uh, answer that, give that answer to that question, His idealism is only a hobby, meaning it has no bearing in real life. And um, in his writing, Chesterton was pushing against the grain of his times. This is the early 1900s, a time of of, of sort of humanist optimism. Um, World War I hadn't sort of popped everyone's balloons of optimism at the time. And so he's writing against a a number of different people, right? And some of them who were his friends, uh, atheists and and folks who were really into evolution and utilitarians and humanists, naturalists, nihilists. Basically, if you weren't a Christian, uh, Chesterton was pushing back and saying, you're missing the most important piece of, of real life. Until you can acknowledge the brokenness of the human person and their frailty and their inability to do good, um, your, your ideas and your philosophies are just games. They have no bearing in real life. Christianity, of course, it goes against the grain of every age, and, and different ages have different things that Christianity pushes up against. Um, there's not really one culture in the world that sort of fully integrates Christianity in a way um, that they don't have, they're not challenged in some way by it. That um, challenges everyone. And that's true of 20th century England, but it's also true of our own time. Um, but of all the things the Bible teaches that, that don't make sense in our time, uh, neighbors and culture in the world, um, I would think this thing that Lewis talks, uh, Chesterton talks about, this thing that G.G. Chesterton talks about, is, is chief among them. It is chief among them. Uh, this idea that, that human beings are frail that they're prone to uh, fits of self, 
um, self-sabotage uh, and they wound themselves and they wound others and that's a pattern that you can see throughout all of history. Um, well, that's something that comes from our reading today in Mark chapter 7. It's one of Jesus' teachings about the human heart um, applied in a way that is accurate to what Jesus' ministry actually looks like. So I'm going to briefly touch on this small part of Mark chapter 7, and then I want to talk a little bit more about, about what that means for you and me. And that's where we're going to go this morning. Um, so from Mark chapter 7, we have this section of the, the, the larger reading in which Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees um, because they're not obeying the traditions of the elders. Um, the elders made traditions, they made extra rules for the people of Israel to follow so that they wouldn't break God's laws. And Jesus' critique of that is, um, well, you've made so many laws that now by following the traditions, you're missing out God's actual law. And, and Jesus says, you've basically nullified God's law, legally nullified God's law, and you've enshrined man's law as most important. And Jesus is frustrated about this. He, he, he does not hold back his condemnation of the Pharisees. And concluding his anti-Pharisee diatribe, Jesus turns to the crowds and gives us the passage that is relevant for us. It is confusing, it's offensive, and it's countercultural, and I shall read it to you now. And Jesus called the people to him again and said, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when Jesus had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but in his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, slander, envy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And so in this one short teaching, given privately to the disciples, Jesus tells us something about the nature of humankind uh, that is, well, not particularly flattering. That the source of the evils of the world, the things that are wrong in the world, the root source of all of our social and personal ills is the human heart. The human heart. Um, it was a challenge in Jesus' day just as much as our own because at the time the ills of the world were deemed to be all these external things. Things like if we could only get rid of these Roman occupiers, then our life would be greater. If we could only get rid of these people who aren't following God's laws, life would be greater. If we could only just you know, kick out all the Gentiles, that would be great. There were a number of these, if we only could do these things and get rid of those people, then our life would be better and our ills would go away. If only they'd see the world like we do, if only they'd follow the traditions of the elders. But to all of this, Jesus says, no. The real problem of human life is not located in the external, in, in foreign armies or lax religious observance. The real problem is interior. The real problem is us. The real problem can be seen staring back at us in the mirror when we shave or put on our eyeliner in the mornings. The call, as they say, is coming from inside the house. 
And so in Jesus' view, and his view is right, if Jesus' view, the problem isn't the act in our reading of, of washing hands or eating non-kosher food, right? That's not why he's declaring unclean. The problem is that someone knows they're not supposed to eat bacon, and they eat the bacon anyway. That's the real problem. The problem isn't bacon. The problem is a heart that says, God tells me not to eat bacon, and I don't care. That is the problem. Um, and, and so by proxy, Jesus, when he comes into the world and you look at Jesus' ministry, he really does want to fix the real problems of life, not the illusionary ones. He heads straight for the source, right? Much to the chagrin of the people, Jesus does not come to stop people from eating bacon or to increase piety or kick out the Romans. Jesus comes to fix the hearts of the sort of people who were told not to eat bacon and eat it anyways, <laughs> You know, people like you and me. Um, it's not bacon for us, but it's something. Uh, it's whatever it is for you, you know what it is. And so we need to fix our perspective here because, again, to extend the metaphor, as long as we think that Jesus is coming to tell people not to eat bacon, we're going to miss his ultimate goal. As long as we see Jesus as a deliverer of rules and ethics, we're going to miss the point. Because Jesus is on a mission to fix our wicked hearts, and if we understand that, well, maybe bacon comes back on the menu. Maybe we get to eat bacon again. One of the best formulations of this idea, the real problem is the heart. It comes to us from a scholar and pastor named Ashley Knoll. Now, Dr. Knoll is a scholar, a historian, and his great sort of emphasis is the Protestant Reformation in England, and he has a great profile, he's one of the world's experts, on uh, Thomas Cranmer. Now, who is Thomas Cranmer? Um, he is the author of the Book of Common Prayer, which is the guide that we use every Sunday for our worship. It is a historic book. It is a book that um, he developed, and uh, it's shaped everything from English spirituality to the English language. It's a very important book in the world. What Thomas Cranmer did was, was in the Reformation, he took the old Catholic liturgy, and he got rid of some of the weird stuff that, um, that came through in the Middle Ages. And then he injected into it uh, the Reformation emphasis on, on grace and mercy and forgiveness. And the result was a, was a book of how to order church, and he sent it out and made copies, and every church in the Church of England used it. And that was called the Book of Common Prayer. And so this professor, Dr. Ashley Null, he writes of Cranmer that one of his key contributions in writing this book and passing it out to everybody was that he developed a proper, sort of for the first time really in English or Christian history, a proper theology and psychology of human behavior. Noel says that there's this assumption buried within our church services, our very own church services, our liturgies, our Anglican heritage and Christianity. There's this implicit assumption that human beings operate in this way. Are you ready? That human beings operate like this. They say what, what he says, what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Let me say that again, right? At the root of Christian theology, human beings, Jesus' strategy um, all focus around this understanding of human psychology, which is that what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. Um, and so what ends up happening is, is we look at Jesus' ministry and we see him, he's going to people who don't have the right behavior. He often goes to people who are deemed to be on the other side of the tracks, the moral no-goods, 
the people who are, are far away from God. And he doesn't go to them with words of condemnation, and he doesn't go to them with words of, of finger-wagging, but he engages with them, visits with them, spends time with them. He loves them in such a way because he knows that the way to transform someone's life is not to, to give them behavioral instruction. It's to realign their loves. It's to go for the heart. The ministry of Jesus is fundamentally one of the heart. Um, this is why throughout Mark's gospel, one of the things we see is there's a mismatch between what Jesus wants to do, which is to preach and to teach about the kingdom of God, and what the crowds want him to do. The crowds want him uh, to, to do healings and exorcisms. Um, so there's this mismatch because Jesus wants to talk about the kingdom of God and, and how it's gracious and merciful and it's coming and to get people to repent and to, to begin this process of opening up their hearts. And he can't do that if everyone's bringing all of their sick and their, 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 their demon-possessed and, you know, heal him, heal him. And they're tugging on his cloaks and they're trying to, to, to get into his personal space. It's why Jesus has to get on a boat and go out into the sea, as we talked about a few weeks ago. He gets on a boat and goes out into the sea for a couple of meters uh, so that, that he can actually project to the crowd and not be bothered by them crushing him. And so when people ask Jesus to comment on current events in this gospel and others, his response is things like this. He says, don't worry about that. Don't worry about that tower that fell. Don't worry about the, 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 the people that Pilate killed in a church service. He says, don't worry about that. You know what you need to worry about? You need to worry about your own soul for even thinking to ask that question. That's what Jesus says to them. His mission is to get to the inside. Stop worrying about all these outside things. It's what about you? What about you? What about your own soul? Right? The target of Jesus' ministry are these sin-sick hearts. Um, the, the diagnosis is not that these external things are the problem, but it is our hearts that are the problem. And if that's true, if that's true, I, there's so many implications for how we arrange our life, how we do our ministry, how we you know, parent, how we, how we work, how we uh, exist in community. There's so many of these implications out there. Um, I don't have time to tell you all of them today, but I've got a couple and I want to share them with you. Because if the part is truly the problem, if that's the source of it all, um, then it means we need to realign in, in, in some of our things. Um, we need to realign our expectations, our strategies about life. So, for example, if, G, if, the, if the problem Jesus came to fix is the human heart, then one of the things that we as Christians are going to do differently is we're going to recognize our own faults before we start talking about other people's faults. That should be what Christians do. Do we do it right all the time? No. But that's the direction. Um, Jesus says, before you start going outside to criticize, make sure you've done the work of going inside. This is why Jesus will say in his parables things like, you know, um, before you talk about the splinter of wood in your neighbor's eye, um, examine the two by four sticking out of your own, you know. Uh, that's, Jesus will say that. And Jesus will say, you know, hey, be careful about how you judge other people because, you know, one day those, those same rubrics are going to be used to judge you. And then Jesus will say, you know, um, we think of it as, as action and behavior, but it's actually the heart. He'll say things like, okay, well, you don't like adulterers, and you don't like murderers, and you don't like thieves. I get it. But if you've ever hated, or you've ever lusted, or if you've ever coveted, you might as well have done it too. He says, don't go pointing your finger over there when you've got some junk in your own heart. And so this, should, this leads Christians, particular, to this strange mix of skepticism and compassion, 
I think Christians are uniquely positioned to have two seemingly opposite values at play at the same time, skepticism and compassion. We have skepticism um, because we recognize that other people have the same unholy inclinations that we do in our own hearts. And so when people make claims to righteousness or victimhood or, or they, they make these grandstanding moral claims that are meant to inflame our passions, we look at that and we say, hold on. Let me step back and think about this for a minute. We approach those things with skepticism because they're trying to inflame the passions of our heart, and Jesus says, that's not right. And so we, we look at the world around us, and there are so many things that, that, are, that are trying to, to fuel our outrage, fuel our, our sense of moral indignation, and Jesus says that's not part of the solution, that's part of the problem. So we have this mix of skepticism, but also compassion, because, you know, when people do end up in those places, when people do uh, listen to the follies of their own wicked hearts, well, we've done that too, and we face those consequences as well. So we're not scandalized, we're not put off when people have moral failings. Instead, we tend to lean more towards sympathy and compassion, because we would want other people to extend us sympathy and compassion if we too are led astray by our wicked hearts. So that's the first thing to say. The first thing to say is we, before, we, before we, we go bemoaning the external sources of struggle in the world, we look at our own hearts first. Second implication. If Jesus came to fix um, our uh, problems that are rooted in the human heart, then behavior change cannot be our primary aim. Behavior change is not our primary goal. Um, if you've seen the the trope on you've seen this trope on TV before, and so like the woman is expressing her frustrations about a relationship to the man, and she'll say things like, you know, you never buy me flowers, you never buy me jewelry, and the man sort of looks flummoxed and perplexed, and he responds, oh darling, I love you, I didn't know that's what you wanted. Of course I'll buy you flowers. Of course I'll buy you jewelry. And then what does the woman say? She says, no, it's not about the flowers and the jewelry. It's that I want you to buy me the flowers. I want you to buy me the jewelry. Right? She's saying, there's something off in your heart. It's not about the behavior of buying me jewelry or, or flowers. She's saying, I, I actually want you to be so impassioned in your care and your love for me that I don't have to ask you to do these things. And of course, what happens in those relationships? What happens? Well, the man walks away really confused, and the woman walks away really frustrated, and the relationship falls apart. But, 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 but it gets to the heart of what Jesus is trying to say as well as Cheap Trick in their 1977 song, right? I want you to want me. I need you to need me. Uh, some of you really danced to that uh, when it came out. I know that you did. And um, when, when, when people want, we want people to change. Ultimately, we don't want to focus on their behaviors because we know that they can fake the behaviors. We know that they can sort of mimic the behaviors and go through the tropes. That's not what we want. and It's not what God wants for us. What God wants for us is to have our hearts impassioned in such a way, full of love, full of, of desire for what is good and right and true, that the behavior change is a natural outflow of that. That's what God is trying to work through. That's what Jesus' ministry looks like. And so whether in our community, whether it's, it's friends, whether it's people we know who are addicts or misbehaving children, underperforming employees, struggling family members, friends with mental illness, anyone who needs a life change, you know that you don't want to change the behavior. You want to change something in their hearts. 
Um, this is why laws um, talking about behavior change often backfire, right, from a legal perspective. Here's an example. Um, it was about 2010 or so when all the fast food restaurants started putting the calorie numbers on their menu board. You've, you've seen this, right? They put the calorie numbers on the menu board. And they said this is a great public experiment because we think if people know how many calories are in this Big Mac or in this Quarter Pounder or in the French fries or the Chick-fil-A, then they're going to make different decisions, wiser decisions, about how to engage with their menu choices. Well, in 2019, 2014, in fact, all over, um, there are studies that say, um, we, we've studied this, and, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't change people's behavior habits in the long term. It does at first for about four to six months. It'll change their behavior patterns. But after about four to six months, people will go back to how things went before. And not only this, though, but people will begin to say, they'll, they'll interview people, say, did you see the, 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 the uh, calorie count on the mini board? They'll say, yes, I did. And they'll say, did you change your behavior? Did you eat less or whatever? And they said, yes, I did. But then what they did is they pulled up receipts from the register for the past year, and they calculated from the receipts and what people ordered that that's not true. <laughs> Um, that if you look at what people ordered and what they ate and how, they, they, it, how that impacted each other, there was, there was no change. In fact, in some places, it even got worse. People ordered more calories than they did before when the menu uh, showed the calorie counts. So they said, if we want people to change, if obesity is an epidemic, we want people to change their, their eating behaviors and their patterns, it's not going to happen by just trying to get behavior changed by giving people information. There's something else that has to change, and it's something deeper and more profound. A change of the heart is what we want. Final, final implication. If Jesus, came, if Jesus diagnoses the problem as, as the human heart and he wants to fix it, um, then the way, the only way to change the human heart for better is through love. It is. The only way to change a human heart for better is through love. The solution may be, the problem may be our interior hearts, but the Bible tells us that solution is an external source of love. That is the solution. Jesus will say in John's gospel, greater love has no, man, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for their friends. And so Jesus' death and resurrection becomes the greatest love of all. I'm sorry, Whitney Houston, it's not that you've got a different greatest love of all, and it's not true. The greatest love of all is not the love of self, like Whitney Houston saying. It is laying down one's life for another. I, the, the, the gospel then becomes like the spiritual defibrillator paddles, right? You know, clear to junk. And all of a sudden, from a spiritual perspective, from the heavens perspective, the gospel comes in and kickstarts that which is dead and dying and full of wickedness. And it starts to beat afresh and anew in such a way that, again, the heart is the core of everything we are. And all of a sudden, when the heart is brought alive and brought to love God as it properly should, then our wills begin to choose what is good and right for God. And our minds begin to think without condemnation and without, with a clear conscience about how we interact with the world around us. That is the scripture's vision of how transformation happens. We need the laws, we need the rules, we need the information, but that alone is not enough. What we need is a change of heart. And so here comes the love of God through Jesus' death and resurrection, cementing together all of these benefits, the forgiveness of our sins, the restoration of our relationship with our Creator, reconciliation with your Heavenly Father. 
eternal life without the hardship and mishaps of this world that we now experience. And in Jesus' day, no one sees it coming. The Pharisees are too busy worried about hand-washing to understand the gods, that God is into this great gift of love. The disciples are confused. They have to ask for clarification. The crowds think all they need is healing or exorcism when they, in fact, need so much more. And so I say to you this morning, friends, a great and cosmic truth. We all have broken hearts. We all want things that are bad for us. We all want things that are against God's law. All of us have our own um, things we have not done and should have done and things we've done that we shouldn't have done. They were not coerced by outsiders. They were from our own volition. As our confession outlines in our service, which we'll say together in just a bit, we have not loved God with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. Hear that language of love from our very own confession, our own heart language. To paraphrase Chesterton, what is wrong? We are. But God is right. If we are wrong, God is right. God loves us anyway. Our inability to please him, to follow our laws, his laws, our inability to do what God asks of us is not a barrier for God to come and give us his love anyway, a love so strong that it raises the dead. Jesus' death, it does more than give us instructions for living a better life or rules for how to behave. We have not loved God, um, excuse me, we have not loved God enough to for those things to work. Instead, Jesus' love pierces through the hardest heart and brings the, the, the humility and compassion and sort of holy skepticism and, and focus uh, that we previously uh, lacked in a grievous way. So even this, um, even though this is amongst the hardest of all the Christian doctrines, um, Jesus' <clears throat> assertion today is that it is part one, a necessary foundation for the good news to come. It is much easier to acknowledge the problem if the God, if God the Father, has provided a solution. And as we go through Mark's gospel, friends, as we get towards the end, we will see very clearly that God does indeed have a solution for our broken hearts, and he has given it to us all. In Jesus' name, amen. Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.